So if you'd like to turn back to the passage that we uh, looked at earlier in uh, Joshua 5, Joshua 5 from verse 13. Now, uh, for those of you who were with us when we last looked at the book of Joshua a few weeks ago, you may recall that we had left the children of Israel on the plains of Jericho, having crossed miraculously the river Jordan. They were on, camped on the plains of Jericho, celebrating their relationship with God. Under the direction of God himself, they had taken stones from the riverbed as they crossed the Jordan. And those stones had been placed in a heap or a cairn, which was a memorial, a visible reminder to the Israelites. And it wasn't just a memorial of the fact that they had crossed the Jordan in a miraculous manner. The cairn of stones was primarily a testimony to the faithfulness of their God. For God had promised to Abraham centuries beforehand that he would bring Abraham's descendants back to that land. And God had delivered on that promise. He'd brought the children of Israel into that very land in which Abraham had been living at that time. But not only that, Abraham had been what's called a sojourner in that land. He was a temporary resident. He was someone who was just passing through the land. But the Israelites were now going to become permanent residents. They were going to receive an inheritance which had been promised to them by God himself. God had been faithful then to the promise thus far, bringing them across the Jordan and into the land of Canaan. But the people of Israel were not just reminded of the faithfulness of their God, by a pile of stones, however. They'd also just participated in the Passover. This was a memorial meal, whereby they looked back to the night when God had brought them out of Egypt. For that night in Egypt, after partaking of the Passover meal, They'd started their long journey back to the promised land. Now, some 40 years later, the Israelites again celebrated the Passover. Not this time as they were about to flee Egypt, but as they were settling into the promised land of their inheritance. God had been faithful. He'd accomplished exactly what he had promised Abraham all those centuries before. Well, although the Israelites had been brought safely across the Jordan, there remained much to be done before they could enjoy the land that had been promised to them. Facing them was the fortified city of Jericho, guarding the way forward and barring their path. If the land was going to be conquered, then first Jericho would have to be taken. 
And it's, so it's to the battle for this city of Jericho that Joshua's attention now has to turn. And in verse 13 of chapter 5, we read that Joshua was by Jericho. The people, of might, might, the people might have been camped out across the plain, but it seems that Joshua had gone forward, apparently alone, closer to the city. Now, we don't know why Joshua was there by Jericho. Some have suggested that he was out reconnoitering the city and surveying its defences. That's certainly a possibility, and it would be quite a reasonable thing for the commander of the army to do. Certainly other servants of God, when faced with an extraordinary task, have done just that. Nehemiah, for example, surveyed the broken walls of Jerusalem by night before embarking on the task of rebuilding them. Just because we're engaged in a spiritual task doesn't mean that we shouldn't size up the job and hand, assess the best approach, and use God-given human ingenuity and wisdom to deal with the problem. It's quite conceivable, therefore, that Joshua is out in the field contemplating the battle that lay ahead of him. Now, while we're not told in this passage why Joshua was there, we do know from this passage what happened when he was there. For we read of a strange encounter which would shape the forthcoming battle. And it's to this encounter that we are going to turn this morning. And we'll take a few minutes to consider this encounter that Joshua had with this strange warrior and try and learn some lessons for ourselves. We'll look at the passage under three headings. The warrior Joshua met, the effect the warrior had, and the orders Joshua received. The warrior Joshua met, the effect the warrior had, and the orders Joshua received. Let's look first then at this warrior that Joshua met. And we see that in verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. We read here that Joshua met a warrior. And it's apparent from the discourse that then ensues that Joshua isn't at all clear whose side this warrior is on. He didn't recognize the soldier as one of the Israelite army, for he immediately challenges him. Are you for us, or are you for our adversaries? And that's the classic line of a century, isn't it? Halt, who goes there, friend or foe? But that immediately raises some questions for us as we read this account, doesn't it? Who is this man that Joshua met? Well, we must be careful when dealing with an incident like this because we must not go any further than the scriptures allow us. But there are several signs here which give us insight into the identity of this man. 
The first thing we notice is in verse 14, where we read that once the man has identified himself to Joshua as the commander of the army of the Lord, Joshua falls to the ground and worships him. Now Joshua knew the Ten Commandments, and the first of these was that he should have no other God than the Lord God Almighty. This in itself is an indication that Joshua considered the soldier to be some kind of manifestation of God. But that's not all. If you looked on in your Bibles into Revelation chapter 19 and verse 10, we read of another encounter, this time one between John and an angel. John there in Revelation 19 falls down at the feet of the angel to worship him. But the angel immediately says, you mustn't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you. Worship God. But you see, this warrior here who Joshua meets doesn't offer any such protestation. He accepts the worship of Joshua. And so, and there's a good reason why. This is a manifestation of God standing in front of Joshua, and God is worthy to receive the worship that Joshua offers. The second thing you notice is in verse 15, when the man tells Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. I wonder if you recognize those words. They're the same words that were spoken to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 when we read that God called to Moses out of the bush. And this is what we read there in Exodus. God said, take your sandals off your feet for the place where you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. You see, the encounter that Moses had with God is, uh, is echoed in this encounter that Joshua has with this strange warrior. It would have immediately struck a chord to Joshua. He would have had a sense of deja vu. And if there was any lingering doubt in his mind, Joshua would immediately have had his First impressions confirmed. You may recall that when we started looking in the book of Joshua, in our first study in that book, we saw that God had said to Joshua, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And here we have that promise playing out. Just as Moses was in the presence of God as he spoke to him, so too Joshua is in God's presence as he speaks to Joshua. And then finally, as we turn to the ensuing discourse in chapter 6, the the verses we read in chapter 6, we see this man, the one who is described as the commander of the army of the Lord, is giving directions to Joshua as to how the battle for Jericho is to be fought. But in verse 2 of chapter 6, the identity of this man is revealed. Read that the Lord said to Joshua... So these three factors all point to the fact that it's not just any old soldier standing in front of Joshua. 
This isn't even an angel in the sense of a created messenger from God. These three factors indicate that as Joshua is by Jericho contemplating the battle ahead, it is God himself who manifests himself before him. Now, we need to be clear that this is and was an exceptional occurrence that we find only infrequently in the Old Testament era. It's what the theologians call a theophany, or a temporary and sudden appearance of God. It was an occurrence largely confined to the period of the patriarchs and a temporary manifestation given on occasions of special need, such as just now, as Joshua faced the key battle of Jericho. Well, you may ask, what was the help that the theophany gave to Joshua? Well, in some ways, I think the answer to this is seen in the response that the man gives to Joshua. You remember that Joshua asked, are you for us? Or are you for our adversaries? But the man answered, no, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. See, Joshua had asked whose side the warrior was on. And the reply was not what you might have expected. For the warrior didn't declare himself either for the Israelites or for the Canaanites. When the warrior replied no, this wasn't a statement of indifference. The warrior wasn't a neutral participant stating that he would uh, side with neither of the belligerent parties. He wasn't indicating either that he would simply stand aside while the two armies fought it out. The answer no highlighted rather that Joshua was asking the wrong question. The relevant question wasn't whose side are you on? The relevant question was who are you? And the answer given was that God himself had come. When the man said, now I have come, this wasn't a statement of the obvious. It wasn't stating that he was simply there. It was stating that he was there for a purpose. This wasn't any soldier standing in front of Joshua. It was God himself with a drawn sword, ready for action. And as Joshua contemplated the battle ahead, he was reassured by this warrior, by this theophany, that God himself was there with him as he faced and contemplated the battle ahead. What about us today? Well, you shouldn't expect to see a theophany as you walk out of LCPC this morning. Because we don't need a sudden or a temporary manifestation of God. Because we've received something far better than that. We see God not in a theophany, but we see God in the Lord Jesus Christ, who took on flesh. And lived on this earth. He became a man. 
We don't need a theophany because the incarnate Son of God wasn't a sudden manifestation of God, but one predicted right from the Garden of Eden. We don't need a theophany because the Lord Jesus Christ wasn't a temporary manifestation. He lived his whole life upon this earth. And not only that, but following his death and his resurrection. He lives today. He's not a temporary ghost, but a real man. Thomas, you remember, could put his finger into the nail marks of Christ's hands and touch the wound in Christ's side. And having ascended into heaven, even now, the Lord Jesus Christ sits as the God-man at the right hand of his heavenly Father. So as today, as we contemplate our battles, it's the Lord Jesus Christ who says, now I have come. And indeed, didn't he tell his disciples, lo, I am with you, even till the end of the age. And shouldn't that be a great comfort to us? Whatever challenges and uncertainties we may be facing today, whether you face difficulties at work or your faith attracts hostility from your family, whether you struggle to pray or you're struggling with a besetting sin, God reassures us, just as he did Joshua, that we are not facing this challenge alone. He reassures us that he is with us with a drawn sword, that he has come. And we can also apply this to us as a congregation, can't we? Currently, we face the challenge of filling our vacancy and appointing a new senior pastor. It would be easy to feel overwhelmed. It seems such a momentous task. There's so much that could go wrong. What happens if we mistake God's leading? What happens if we call the wrong man? Well, we're not left to our own devices in these things, are we? Our commander, the Lord Jesus Christ, gives the same reassurance to us as a church as he gave to Joshua all those years ago. Our commander is standing with us with a drawn sword and tells us that he has come for a purpose, that he, Jesus, will build his church. Well, we've seen who the warrior was that Joshua met. Now we need to see what effect this had, this meeting had, on Joshua. So look Again at verses 14 and 15. No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? The warrior declares to Joshua that he is the commander of the army of the Lord. And this has a dramatic effect on Joshua. He falls prostrate to the ground and worshipped the warrior in front of him. 
And Joshua may have been appointed to lead the children of Israel. He may have been standing in the shoes of Moses, taking up the baton from him as a great leader. But he still needs to humble himself before the Lord. Matthew Henry says this, It was not any disparagement to the greatness of Joshua's spirit thus to humble himself when he had to, when he had to do with God. Even crowned heads cannot bow too low before the throne of the Lord Jesus, who is the King of Kings. So you see, presidents and politicians, potentates and captains of the internet industry, from Boris Johnson to Jeff Bezos, we all have a duty to worship God. Whatever our station in life, we must bow to the Almighty. We must worship the Sovereign King. And Joshua, great leader though he is, is no exception. Joshua was facing the most critical point of Israel's return to the land of promise. Jericho was the stronghold that barred the way to their inheritance. How easy it would have been for Joshua to have been worrying about the plans for the attack. How easy it would have been for him to have spent his time marshalling his troops or ensuring that their spirits were kept high. How easy to expend his energy preparing for the challenge that lay in front of him. But no, Joshua does what is needed most. He turns aside and he worships God. And isn't this a salutary reminder to us how easy it is to be too busy to pray? How quickly our days are consumed with the responsibilities that we carry in life. Whether responsibilities at work, or the desire to perform well in exams, or the pressures of attending to needs of our family and home, all these too readily squeeze out time with God from our lives. To be properly equipped as a leader of God's people, Joshua first needed to spend time with the people's God. To be useful servants of our Lord, we need to spend time in daily communion with him. But this isn't the only effect that we see on Joshua from meeting this warrior. His whole perspective, you see, changes as he contemplates the battle ahead. It would be easy to think of the um, battle for Jericho as being Israel's battle, for they needed to take the city if they were to inherit the land. And as Joshua went forward to the walls of Jericho, perhaps we might anticipate him looking for God's help in the battle ahead. 
And it would be easy to think soldier with the drawn sword being an encouragement to Joshua as he leads the children of Israel into battle. But if we do this, then there's a sense in which we've taken the hold of the wrong end of the stick. Joshua's response here helps us to grasp things from the right perspective. You remember this warrior tells Joshua that he is the commander of the army of the Lord. His drawn sword tells us that God's army is there to fight his battle and execute his judgment on the people of Jericho. And so in response to this, Joshua asks, what does my Lord say to his servant? We see in Joshua's, in Joshua, an eagerness to hear the commander's instruction. For the children of Israel are just one division of the Lord's army. Before, Joshua was concerned what side this man was, would be fighting on in Joshua's battle. Now Joshua recognizes that it's God's battle that lies ahead. And Joshua's desire is to serve his Lord by taking his part in it. Friends, it can be a great challenge to place ourselves under God's command at times. It's in the very nature of a soldier that he's required to be obedient, even though he does not see the whole picture. In 1939, at the beginning of the Second World War, uh, my dad enlisted and he joined the King's Rifle Corps, Royal Rifle Corps. It was right at the beginning of the war. Now, there was an administrative delay which meant that he missed the initial deployment of his regiment. And that was probably just as well because they were sent to Calais to slow the German advance up the coast to buy time for the rest of the British Army to be evacuated from Dunkirk. They were sent into battle against overwhelming odds and within a few days they were overrun. The soldiers might have wondered why they should have been sent into such a precarious position. But their commanders knew. It was a vital part of a bigger plan and their duty was to trust and obey their commanders. Friends, you sometimes question where providence has placed you. Do you sometimes question why God has put you in a particularly challenging situation? Do you wonder why you have to face the financial struggles that perhaps some others don't seem to have? You have the burden of seeing others marry when perhaps it seems like you might never have that opportunity. Do you look on and see others with many friends when you feel so alone in this big city? 
If we find ourselves questioning where providence has brought us, then Joshua shows us here how to respond. Joshua didn't question where God was going to send him in the battle. Joshua's only question was, what does my Lord say to my servant? Friends, I know that for some of you, this can be really hard. But this is where faith comes in. We all, like Joshua, must bow before our commander and trust his wisdom. Well, we've seen the warrior that Joshua met and the effect on Joshua of that meeting. But that then brings us to the orders that Joshua received. We turn now to chapter 6 and the verse, first five verses of that chapter. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. Joshua faced a great fortified city. Looking on the city of Jericho, the Israelites might have been forgiven in thinking that it was impregnable. There were no deserters, for we're told that none came out. And there was no opportunity to negotiate a surrender, for we're told that none went in. The people of Jericho had barred the gates. They put up the barricades and would have nothing at all to do with God's people. Faced with this formidable objective, the Lord gives his orders to Joshua. And there are three things that stand out from the instructions given by the commander of the Lord's army to Joshua. The first we see is who's involved in the battle. We read, don't we, of a daily procession around the walls of the city. There are no instructions to do anything else. But do you notice what we read of in verse 4? Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Now we came across the ark back in chapter 3 when the children of Israel crossed the river Jordan. The ark led the way into the river and then stayed in the river as it were, holding back the waters to allow the children of Israel to pass across. We saw there how the ark represented God's presence with his people. Now we'll leave the details of the battle itself until next time. But suffice for the moment to see that as they processed each day around the city of Jericho, It was the ark which was centre stage as the priests processed around the walls. It reminds us that the battle for Jericho was God's battle. Secondly, we see that victory would be won not by military might, but by the irresistible intervention of God. And that's underscored in verse 5, isn't it? The wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, 
everyone straight before him. There was nothing they had to do. It was all done for them. Joshua and his men would not tear down the walls of Jericho, we're told. God would. But the third thing that we can note from the orders that Joshua received is the assurance of victory that Joshua was given. And we see that in verse 2. See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty man of valor. He does not say that he will get, he does not say that he will get. What it says here is a perfect tense. The matter is already decided. So you see, it's God's battle, not Joshua's. And the outcome is already certain. I have given Jericho into your hand. Well, we'll spend a little bit more time looking at the actual battle for Jericho next time. But will you just pause for a minute and think what these orders tell us? There's a song that we used to sing in Sunday school on occasions, in a different church, I hasten to add, about the Battle of Jericho. And maybe you have heard it or know the refrain. Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. The song uh, is well known, but there's a problem. The theology isn't quite right. Firstly, as we've seen, the battle is not to be fought by Joshua. It was to be fought by God. And the second difficulty is that in many ways it's it's a song of hope. Some uh, versions speak of the walls of doubt coming tumbling down. But the battle for Jericho is not a reason for hope. The battle for Jericho is a warning to all who will turn their back on the gospel and on Jesus. See, the people of Jericho had rebelled against God. We're told in Genesis that over four centuries earlier, they had turned their back on God's word and devoted their lives to sin and wickedness. God had already demonstrated his power to them by bringing the children of Israel across the Jordan. Back in chapter 5, verse 1, we read of the kings of Canaan that their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. You see, even faced with this evidence, even though their fighting spirit had deserted them, They still hardened their hearts against God. Their defiance against God was evident as they barred the gates of Jericho. None could leave the city and join God's people, even if they'd been inclined to. Jericho had set its face against God. 
Psalm 1, which we have sung just earlier, speaks of two people. The man who sets his faith upon God, who blossoms and flourishes like a tree beside water. And it speaks of another man, the wicked, who sets his heart against God, who will face judgment. And the people of Jericho had had centuries to consider this matter. And yet still they barred the doors, they set their face against God. These orders that Joshua receives tells us that by God's irresistible will, the walls will fall and the city will be taken. No one will be able to resist God's will in that day. God had told Joshua that it was as good as done already. The king and all the men of valor were already in Joshua's hand. Friends, doesn't that present to us an awful picture of what will happen to those who set their faces against God? God may patiently present the gospel to you, but men and women may then deny the existence of God and they may ignore the evidence of the Bible and ignore the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Men and women may then refuse to engage with God and they then may try to block the gospel out of their lives with high walls of defense. But friends, one day those walls will crumble and fall and all will face the justice of God. If you have built, if you're listening to this and you've built walls of defiance against God, then please, please listen. When those walls of defiance fall, and they will, it will not be Joshua who you will have to face across the tumbled-down ruins, but the Lord Jesus Christ. Then you will behold not Joshua, but the warrior, with the drawn sword. For the orders that Joshua received tell us a sobering truth that we must take seriously. The orders that Joshua received tell us that if the Lord Jesus is not our commander, then he will surely be our judge. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is our commander, that he is the one who is able to lead us through life, even to our promised land. And so, our Lord, we ask that you would give us hearts which are humble and hearts which trust and hearts which obey. Drawing strength from the knowledge that the Lord Jesus Christ 
is our commander and uh, will be with us even to the end of days, trusting that he will indeed work all things together for good to those who love him and accord according to his purpose. We pray, Lord, for those who may be struggling at the moment in their, in their spiritual lives. We pray, Lord, that this would encourage them to go on, knowing that you are the one who leads us with great wisdom. May we trust and may we obey. And Lord, we pray also for those uh, who have not embraced the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Commander. We pray, Lord, for those who uh, would uh, either out of indifference or out of defiance set their faces against him. How we pray, Lord, for those who are dear to us, our family members, parents and brothers and sisters and children who have turned their faces against the Lord God. We pray, Lord, that uh, uh, during this time they would yet come under your mercy, that their hearts would not be hardened as the people of Jericho were, but, Lord, we pray that their hearts might be melted to recognize who you are, but also to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. So, Father, we pray for those who hear the gospel, and we ask, Lord, that they might not bar their lives against it. But, Lord, there are truths here for us all to take note of, that one day, we all need to stand before you. We pray, Lord, that we would take these things seriously and that that would influence our lives. Our Heavenly Father, we would pray for those in the congregation who have particular needs at this time. We think, Lord, of those who uh, struggle at work or in family, who, uh, who are facing difficulties in the Christian life, in maintaining a Christian witness. And we ask, Lord, that you give them strength and encourage them. We pray, Lord, for those who have bear the burden of grief or of illness, and pray, pray, Lord, that they would know your strengthening and your encouragement. We pray, Lord, particularly uh, this morning for the Jong family, and ask, Lord, that you would undertake for them in the weeks ahead. Lord, we pray for Adam that uh, uh, you would lay a healing hand upon him and guide the, those who treat him in this coming week. May he know a full restoration of health. We pray, Lord, too, for Dita, that she might know, along with the family, peace, peace which comes from knowing you as the captain uh, and the Lord of their lives. We pray, Lord, for ourselves as a congregation that uh, you would uh, guide us through this time of vacancy. We trust, Lord, that as you are our commander, you will lead us to the man of your choosing. And so, Father, we pray that you'd help us to be attentive to your leading and your direction. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us to be ready to hear your orders 
We pray, Lord, that you would give us a spirit of unity, that there would be uh, nothing partisan, but rather, Lord, we would rejoice with a common heart to focus on the man who will preach the gospel here, along with Harrison. Lord, we thank you for our friends in the gospel around the world. And we think, Lord, particularly of the Shepherd family uh, as they head off this week to France before moving on to Africa. We ask, Lord, that as they travel, that you might go with them, that they would know your provision as they settle into a new home, that the uh, children would do well, and that um, Paul and Helen would know your direction and your leading and your enabling and your provision as they seek to minister the word of God to a needy people. We pray, Lord, this, even, this, this morning for those who rule over us. We pray for our government and ask, Lord, that it might govern wisely and well. And we pray, Lord, that in the decisions that they take, uh, that the... Uh, Forces of evil will not be fostered, but rather that the cause of the gospel might be given the opportunity to advance. And we pray, Lord, for the preaching of the gospel in this place, along with uh, other churches up and down the land. Uh, Lord, we ask that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ would indeed be presented clearly, and that many might come to put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, so that they might be safe on that day. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd undertake for us and forgive us for all our sin. In Jesus' name, amen.